Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony here and welcome to today's podcast. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that this podcast goes live on the 11th of January and we're in the middle of launching our online salon management course. So if you're serious about this being the year that you improve your salon management and all that goes with it, then visit growmysalonbusiness.com and register your interest so that you get all the relevant information while the course is still open for enrollment. But be quick, because enrollment closes on January 20th. With that said, on with today's episode. My guest on today's podcast is Gianni Scumacci, who is quite simply one of the very best haircutters there is. But not only is Gianni good with his hands, he also has a great mind and is able to articulate and inspire hairdressers everywhere with his humility and enthusiasm for the craft. In today's podcast, we'll discuss nurturing creativity, what is suitability, the number one ingredient when it comes to suitability, and why it's important to have pride in being a hairdresser, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, my friend Gianni Scamacci. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. I've been, you know, really wanting to get you on here for a while to have a talk to you. I know you've got a, a wealth of knowledge to share with people. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners will will know who you are. They'll know a little bit about your background. And, you know, there's always a legendary story about you, how you, you know, were cutting hair in a salon as a 10-year-old. And, you know, I was on your, I was on your website. And I can vouch for that, that there are pictures of this uh, uh, young Looks about 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, topless, I might add, with a pair of shorts on, cutting someone's hair. And, uh, you know, so the story's true. It's, 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 not, uh, it's not myth. So uh, I know you grew up in a hairdressing family. Your dad was a barber. Your mum was a hairdresser. You lived above the shop. And so, you know, doing hair was, was very much, um, you know, in your destiny, so to speak. And, and this, of course, was in the... Uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, I think we're talking. And it was very much an era of haircutting. And um, uh, you uh, started off at Sassoon after I left Sassoon in the, in the late 80s. I know you started in the 90s and, and had a bit of a meteoric rise through Sassoon. So there you go. I've sort of done a little bit of your introduction. I, and the reason I did that is that there's so much good stuff I want to talk about with you. So I didn't want to get too bogged down in your in your backstory because I think a lot of people know it already. Uh, so I've I've done the bullet points there, um, and I, I want to start off by by really talking to you about creativity. And the reason I want to talk about that is that there's lots of good haircutters in the world, and over the last few years, you know, seeing your stuff on social media which has got more and more prevalence um, since you started your education company. The only way I can describe your work is that it's beautiful. You are a beautiful hair cutter. 
Uh, and, I, and I don't use that expression lightly. You know, there's lots of people out there that are great haircutters, that are technical haircutters, that are amazing haircutters. You are a beautiful haircutter. When I see the work that you that you post online, it's absolutely stunning in terms of its technical ability, but also the the little creative distinctions and the you know the twist that that you give everything. So um, here I am. I'm talking far too much already. I need to pass this over to you. So so let me let me ask you some big questions. And I know I haven't prepared you for any of this at all, uh, but I know you're more than capable of of dealing with these things. So um, here's a big question: What is creativity, and what is suitability? Well, first of all, thank you for that uh, intro. I hope I can live up to uh, <laughs> some of the kind words you've uh, you've mentioned there. Um, to answer your question, what is creativity and what is suitability? For me, I think um, creativity is a form of self-expression. And I think it's about how it's so personal. Um, so I can't really pigeonhole it as a, as a medium. Uh, but for me personally, it's, it's, it's a... It's a privilege, really. I suppose I'm very lucky to be able to be able to express myself, which is the job that I've chosen to do, which is which is hairdressing. And um, whichever creative field you're in, I think it comes down to you being able to um, receive information from an environment or a person or an event or anything in your in your in your ambience, I suppose, and then be able to process that and then re-deliver it in a different way. And I think that's that's a creative process, one creative process. For me, I think it's about being receptive to what's around you and then letting it flow through you. And I think that's certainly my creative process is in four stages. Um, it's heart to hand. So to give you a little bit more on that, um, the heart is where I will feel something to begin with. I have to feel some emotion about an idea that I have. Uh, if I don't feel it, it goes in the bin. And trust me, a lot, of, a lot goes in the bin before and after. Um, but once I feel it, uh, it then goes to my head where I think it and I sort of intellectualize it. And it goes through my eyes where I kind of visualize my mind's eye and my physical eye. And then eventually I create it with my hand. And that's the process and the journey that my creative process goes through. Often it's created before it hits the hand. Um, that's something I've learned and I've seen parallels with, with people I've collaborated with, which we can talk about maybe later on in the conversation. But heart to hand is my creative process. And I think creativity um, is really down to the individual of how they want to make, what they want to make of it. That's what, that's what I make of it. And uh, so far, everything I've worked on, whether it's in fashion, whether it's in a salon, whether it's uh, teaching or it's with a celebrity or whichever medium, I mean, that's the sort of process I use, the same filter every time. And that's what excites me. I think suitability um, is a different question altogether, which is why I've separated my answer. Um, and I think suitability, I'm, I've got very strong views on how I see suitability. Again, it's the eye of the beholder and everyone has their own approach. For me personally, um, suitability is works on different levels. Aesthetic suitability is probably the least interesting to me. Um, because I, I, I'm not so, I, it doesn't concern me how I uh, see someone physically. I, I'm much more interested in how I see them emotionally. Mm. And once I've felt and understood them emotionally, um, I then feel that whatever I decide to do will come out of that. So it comes from a slightly deeper place. 
Um, for me, it's about if, if I work essentially, um, someone asked me this recently, actually in a, in a, in a Q and a, um, on a presentation I did and I work with characters and I suppose, you know, discover, create and evolve. They're the three areas that I work in. Discovering a character is really about, for me, it's about, and I learned this from my early days in the barbershop with my dad, you know, it's about understanding how someone sees themselves. I think you, you really have to have a, a strong, you, to be able to have a strong grip and understanding of how someone sees themselves is the starting point to suitability in my, in my mind. Because once you can understand how they frame themselves, you can then see how you can evolve them. Um, and that to me is an exciting process. And that, that, that's about listening deeper to somebody. Um, going back, it always goes back to the barbershop where I started. You know, my dad had a barbershop uh, with two chairs in it. It was a converted council house. Uh, living room. My grandfather started it. Um, so I'm three generations in. And my dad, I used to sit on a Saturday and watch and sweep the floor. And my dad would have eight or nine people in waiting. There's no appointments. So the pressure's there, eight or nine people. I didn't know that at the time. I was only seven or eight when I was doing this. Mm. And uh, I'd, I'd take the money, sweep the floor and get him his sandwich and a coffee. And he would have the conversation and work for 15, 20 minutes with the clients in the chair, hold court while retaining their privacy and integrity. Then he'd get the next one. And of course, everyone's in earshot. So he was like a conductor. And what it taught me, looking back on it, was what listen to what's not being said. Because often when you're in that close proximity, in an, in, and you know, I think there's more intimacy in a barbershop than there ever was in a lady's hairdressers. And I think that it's a safe place for men to go. And for that very reason, you have to read between the lines because you don't want to ask, ask to the wrong question or talk about the wrong thing when you've got an audience of other people around you. And so that taught me that when you're dealing with suitability, often when someone's in on my chair, I will listen to what's not being said. And that will tell me more about them than what they're actually saying to me often. So it's really about listening deeper. And I mean, I could get very technical into the process, which yeah, I, I won't do necessarily. That's but really it, interesting. And for me, it's, it's sort of... Um, uh, for me, it's about where someone is emotionally, and that that you know, people say say to me, you know, um, uh, when you're in, I, I still work in a salon behind the chair, and I, I, I always have through the whole of my journey. Um, and what I love about it is my clientele. You see, I don't think my clientele have ever stayed the same. I've, I've repeated haircuts, of course, and styles and suggestions with color, and for a period. But the reason why I think I've always tried to evolve them and move them on, apart from not myself, not getting bored in the salon is because clients, you know, go through like with their people, they're human beings. And for me, people have been, if not more, more important and interesting to me than hair and they go through life journeys. So for me, where someone is emotionally on one haircut, you know, three months later, or maybe two or three haircuts later, they might be in a different place. And so that, that helps guide what I'm going to do in terms of being suitable for them. Um, so knowing where they are in their life and why they're there, it could be something that's painful. It could be something that's joyous, you know, wherever it could be. And so suitability for me lies uh, a lot deeper in the water than the surface. That is a, that, that's a fantastic answer. Um, and I know that you are a passionate educator. Um, so I want to ask you about how you teach that, because, you know, it's interesting at the moment, over the last two years, there's been an avalanche of, of you know, demonstrations and technique on social media. And because of, 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 you know, the times that we're living in, a lot of that work is demonstrated on a mannequin head. 
So you're looking at beautiful haircuts, yours included, that are sometimes on a mannequin head. And it's stunning in terms of its, you know, on a mannequin head, it is stunning in terms of the the, the shape and the balance and the feel and the structure, et cetera, behind it. But of course, on a mannequin head, there is no emotion. So what I want to ask you about is, is, is essentially what you're going right back to is the most basic fundamental thing of the consultation. So how do you teach people to do a consultation so that they get an insight into how people feel emotionally about the hair? Because not everyone just says, I want half an inch off the bottom or same as last time, you know? So, you know, disregarding all that and, and saying we're about more than that. We've got to dig deeper than that. Talk to us about the consultation process and, and what you educate people to do and say and think during that process. That's a really great question. I'd like to start that answer by saying that, you know, I don't see myself actually as an educator. I never have. When I was at Sassoon's, um, you mentioned in the intro, top of the chat, um, I was very pro and very aggressively pro salon, uh, salon, work, salon hairdressers, the salon stylists and colorists. And although Vidal Sassoon at the time and still has, you know, this, uh, you know, giant academy and teaching platform, um, although I was involved in doing collections and imagery and uh, I suppose guiding some of the direction at times with, with other people, of course, um, I was, I never left the salon and I never was interested in going into the school. So I, I actually see myself as a salon hairdresser behind the chair who happens to share his process with other people, um, not to sound, um, I suppose not to try to sort of pick, pick points out of your out of your uh, title with it, but I think it's important distinction because I think um, I've never been taught how to teach. Um, I've only ever gone by my instincts and try to convey the way I feel about the work I do to other people in that way, and that is important to the rest of the point I want to make with you. Because to answer the question directly. You're absolutely right that, you know, often in the workshops and think and events, we work on these plastic mannequin heads. But I think that um, I, of course, have various techniques and philosophies that I teach that do give people step-by-step -step guides on how to read a person. And it, it is very much if you really took us somebody who was emotionally numb for whatever reason, there's no judgment there, they could follow this step-by-step step and be able to, to, to get a result from it. But actually, to answer the question about working with mannequin heads and how do you learn to read somebody when you've got a plastic head in front of you, it really begins with the person themselves, the headers themselves. And so what I do is, quite honestly with you, Anthony, I sell, I say the word sell, but you know, people come to me for technique. Uh, I use I sell the word techniques as a as a as a a guise to really that's the surface that's that's the entry point but really it's about taking them deeper on a journey of understanding who they are because I think it's only when you start to become more aware of your own uh, emotions and feelings that you can then understand somebody else's so when we're in that process you know a lot of people come and work going into the haircutting. And they work technically and they're very concerned about whether it's balanced and whether it's precise. Mm. But what I really try to bring is take away the technique. It's important. And once you've learned that, you move forward into a different realm, really. And it's about the tension you pull with the hair. It's about understanding the – we all have a conversation with hair. 
And some hairdressers are very aggressive. And so when they're talking with hair, they can comb and move their hair really aggressively. And then, of course, the hair shrivels up because it, if you're doing that with a person, if I was very aggressive with you right now, you'd probably be, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd sort of move backwards because it would be aggressive and it'd be threatening. And some hairdressers are quite scared of hair. So then they'll, they'll almost let the hair take over. Whereas I prefer to have a, a, a conversation with hair where the hair talks back. And so I tend to use the haircut as an excuse and a technique, whether it be on a mannequin head or not, to really enlighten the hairdresser who is, who's come in to, to learn about how they feel about what they're creating. And often I find that they're too concerned with what their hands are doing and not necessarily what their heart and mind are doing. Mm. And they're two totally two different things. You know, the process of cutting hair in my heart to hand is only the hand part. There's three bits before that that are hugely far more important. And if you get those right, the hand just, it's already done before you actually do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, it's, it's not every, I mean, uh, you know, I work with lots of different people from all age groups, from all backgrounds and cultures. Uh, and that's interesting as well. But I, I suppose when I'm teaching in a class, I see the class as a garden. Um, and each person is different. So, you know, some, some flowers and plants need water. Some need sunshine, some need shade, some need to be left well alone. Mm. You know, the value I want to bring in that environment is about them being enlightened to their significant worth, but also more importantly, their, uh, their own feelings about what they're doing with their hands. And that's more important to me than what they're actually doing with their hands, <laughs> because that's, yeah. that's where the magic is, I, be I believe. And so, that's the beginning process. So when they go back to their salon, it's not so much about me saying, well, if you've got Mrs. So-and-so, you should be asking them this question. If you've got Mr. So-and-so, you should ask him that. It's much more about them being more in tune with uh, the heart, where it begins in the heart and, 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 and how they feel. So they can then engage on a deeper level possibly to, okay. to, to then pitch the right, the right thing for suitability. I hope that answers the question. Oh, no, it's great. There's so many gems of information in there. I'm sort of thinking... I often, when I do these podcasts, I think about the person listening. I, th I think about the salon owner that is in their car listening to this. And I think about, okay, if they're going to listen to this, what are they going to take away from it? And I'm loving what you're saying. So I'm, I'm asking on behalf of that salon owner a question about how do you nurture talent in other people? And so the, 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 the question is, if I'm that salon owner listening to this, what are one or two things, bullet point things that I should take away from what you're saying as to how I can nurture the talent and the people on my team? What would the, the top two things be that you'd say? Well, the first one, without doubt, would be apply what I've just said to your, your team member. Yeah. Because this doesn't apply to clients, it applies to everyone. So often I find when I walk into businesses, um, uh, Often, you know, I learned a great thing uh, when I was really young. I used to play a lot of football and my dad always used to tell me, you really want to put a t-shirt on under your shirt because you're going to get cold. You know, you know, it's winter days. Yeah. And, I, and I would never do that because I thought it was uncool. I was about, you know, I was about nine, eight or nine, 10 years old. And I didn't want to, I wanted to be, you know, with the gang. You know, the, the football coach came around one day pick me up because he lived near us to take me to training. And he, he, he commented on it as he saw me getting ready and I put it on straight away. And my dad said, you know, but I've been telling you that for, for a couple of years, but of course you're my dad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's, he's my coach, right? 
And so it's sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees when it's your own family. And that's, I think that applies often in business when you've got people with you for a long time. Uh, and for me, I think the first thing is to understand what motivates the member of staff, the young stylist, let's call it the young stylist for this particular yeah. example. Yeah. What's their motivation? And uh, an understanding deeper what motivates them. And I think at that point, you know, you can then engage with them, uh, not only with what motivates them, but or, I mean, I, I'm very much, um, I don't rule by fear. I, you know, I think people, I always, when I was running the salon, when I was in a salon, um, you know, I, I learned, I was 21, 2021 20, running 45 staff in Sloan Street. The eldest was 92 years old running the cloakroom and the youngest was 16. And I had everybody in between, including ex-art directors from San Francisco and all these other other places around the Sassoon Empire. And I, it was a great place to cut my teeth and learn about how to manage people, not just creatively, but also day to day. And I'll never forget, uh, and this might answer the question, I'm trying to give it in a, in a, in a, in a real-time analogy so it, it, people can relate to it. Um, there was a wonderful lady, a wonderful lady who worked, she was about 50, I was 21. Uh, she'd been doing hair since for 30 years plus. Um, always wore Isimayaki beautifully turned out. I know who you mean. Very, very old school Sassoon, mm. uh, a little uh, and fabulous. And she worked in another salon and they, they merged two salons together. And they asked me to come back to manage the, the, the team because there were two salons and there was a cross pollination of cultures. And they asked me and another art director, two of us to go in and, and help um, to merge the situation and this particular individual, uh, who I adore and uh, adored at the time, was quite neurotic as a character. And I would always like the salon to be a harmonious. I, I see it very much like a family. Um, but this particular uh, lady, just if anything went wrong, anything could go wrong. It could be the smallest thing. She would, it would, she would, you know, explode, and there would be a little bit of a disturbance in the force. Mm. And so I made it my position to sit next to her every day and keep her calm to settle the waters. And we had, uh, you know, we, we had a, a soiree, which was uh, where all the staff had to present a model uh, uh, for training. And of course, someone of that profile, we wasn't interested in doing any of that. So what I did was I, I, I got everybody in the salon to put their names in a hat and pull out another name and keep it secret, you know, like a secret Santa type of thing. But it, it was actually for the soiree. And I, pro I provided all the models for all the senior staff so they didn't have to worry about going out in the streets mm. out of respect. And then what you had to do was do the haircut in the style of the person whose name's on your card, but not tell anyone. And we all had to guess who it was. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that this, luckily this young stylist had this, this lady's name and presented this haircut in her style. And we discussed why it was her style. And what was important was that she was respected, she was recognized, and she felt secure that she was part of a family. And that settled her. And the rest of the salon fell into place. Mm. And it was down to that idea. And so that was one idea that I had. It was really important for me that the, the more established members of the team felt as valued and respected because you know there's too much talk in this industry about a young people's game nonsense absolute mm. nonsense um i've learned i've learned from everybody but you know i learned 
so much from, I always surround myself with older people. I still do. And it's, it's a trick that I learned when I was, well, it's not a trick. It's just something I naturally have happened to me as a youngster. Um, and I've kept it going and it is served me well. So it's really understanding the individual, I think. Yeah. Now that's really important. I used to do something very similar, not the same as that, but, but, but we would all start doing a model and then you stop and swap, swap clients. Um, and you had to finish off someone else's haircut that they'd started without changing what they'd started. You had to, you know, to work with that. So it, it was, it was a very interesting exercise to get people to, to approach it from a different mindset. Um, so yeah, that, those sort of games, I think, or, or activities, they're not really games, uh, are really good at forcing people to think about what they do differently. Um, let, let me, you know, that was very much about nurturing creativity in other people. Let, let me ask you this question, which is the same sort of thing, uh, but it's focused on you, the individual. Um, how, how do you nurture your own creativity? So, yeah, I essentially, um, I tend to work better under pressure. So I tend to put myself um, under pressure as much as I can. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess I'm... I'm always trying to, I think music, I work from an emotional base, as I think I've mentioned already. So, you know, music is a huge influence on my emotions. We do it day to day, whether you're in the gym, you know, and you want to motivate yourself or you get home and you want to put something calmer on because you've had a manic day. So I do use music to, to enhance, I suppose, my emotional space to create. Um, in terms of topping up my creativity, I'm not so sure how I would do that. I think I just, I'm always curious. I'm a very curious person. I was a curious child and I, I think I'm a very curious adult probably more so and so I'm always interested um one of the key to give you one quick example uh one of my one of my idols is um a guy called Mike Rutson um and you know I've always been fascinated by great white sharks as a, as a youngster uh, mm -hmm. always have you know um and I think they're very misunderstood which is another reason why I was very keen to to study them and later in life, you know, there's this guy called Mike Rutson, who I studied is a great doc. It's something I would recommend anybody to go and who's listening would go and watch. It's Natural World on the BBC and it's a guy called Mike Rutson. And he spends more time, he spent more time with the great white shark uh, in, in open water than anybody else living or has had done up until the point of the documentary, mm. which was a few years ago. And he learned how to, there's a thing with a shark where you, put it into tonic immobility, which is essentially where you hypnotize a shark. And there's two ways of doing it. You turn it upside down or you, you massage its neural pathways in its nose. The reason I'm bringing this up, sorry, I know it sounds a bit off the question, <laughs> but is that he's learned how to do this. And I went and met him in South Africa and dived with him with the sharks. Wow. And the reason why uh, he's nurtured my creativity is that I watched and studied how he was with the shark. And that taught me how to approach people, which essentially are what spur my creativity. So that's kind of really, those sorts of things really inspire me and stimulate me. And when I'm inspired and stimulated, things come to me. I just have a lot more of an open, you know, I'm not, listen, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not creative all the time, far from it, but it's when I go through those experiences, ideas come. And I, I, I guess that's one of the key examples I can give you. Yeah, no, I, I love the use of analogies. I, I'd written down a question to ask you, and one part of me is going, don't ask him that. You've already sort of, he's covered that. But then the other part of me is intrigued because there's one key word in there which might shift the way you talk about it. And it's this question. How do you bring out the best in a woman? 
Um, in in terms of um, in terms of the way they look in a in yeah, a yeah, in, yeah, in a client yeah, situation, I'm, I'm only talking about the client. Me, I'm only talking about behind the chair, mate. Like the rest of it, we don't have time for. Yeah, so uh, let's I just, would have an, uh, but let's yeah, just no, talk I think, about that from that from that. Yeah. I know you've already we've come at it from different angles, but I thought as soon as yeah. I throw that word you know, woman in there, I wonder yes. if that will shift how you think about the creative process. And I mean, yes. I, it goes right back to the first thing you said about the emotional connection, I think, you know, so. But, but tell yeah, me that's a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it is that. Um, I, I mean, I'm very lucky to have probably a very strong feminine side to my personality. Mm. And I think that only gets enhanced by working with so many women. I'm being generic because I work with men as well, but just because yeah. we're on women yeah. uh, every day for the last 30 odd years. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's about tuning into them emotionally. It really is because I think that's how you get the best out of someone. You know, let me put it this way. There's a, there's a phrase that goes around, uh, which I know I'm sure is right up your street in terms of, I know you're you know, hugely experienced and expert in, in the business field, as well as the hair field. And, you know, it's this word of mouth is the strongest form of advertising. Mm. You know, I couldn't disagree more with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me give you why and, and what I think. You see, I think word of eye is far more powerful. I've built 31, 32% of my clientele on word of eye. Let me give you the distinction between the two. And it will answer the question I think you've asked me. Uh, I hope, which is that word of eyes, I do, let's just call her Jane for the sake of argument, the client. Jane comes in, I do her hair, I finish it, she goes to lunch, she meets her friend, she sits down and her friend says, you know, how are you doing? She's like, just come from the hairdressers and, you know, hopefully she says, you know, I really love my hair. You should meet this guy, Anthony, who's a stylist, right? You know, he's a great guy. Here's his card. You should go and see him. That's word of eye. Uh, sorry, that's word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, word of eye is when Jane gets up from her chair in the salon and you've done something to her where not only she looks good, but she feels great. Mm-hmm. She, she's wearing the haircut. It's not wearing her. Mm-hmm. And she goes to lunch but while she's waiting for her friend to arrive, a complete stranger comes up and says, excuse me, you look fantastic. You know, your hair looks great. Where did you get it done? That is far more powerful. And there's a huge distinction between the two, as I mentioned. And to get to that point, you've got to make Jane feel great because the way she walks with it is going to be so much more different than the way she looks with it. And that's really how I think you get the best out of uh, a client. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, all these questions are similar. They all tie in together. And what you just said was magic. She's wearing the haircut. It's not wearing her. That is so important. That is the essence of it. It can be the most technically brilliant haircut ever, but if she, if she doesn't feel to good, me, if it's not part of her, then it doesn't work. Yeah. I couldn't, I really couldn't care less how technical it or untechnical what I do is really. I, I think what the, the, the gauge for me is how they get up from the chair. Mm. It's not when they're in the chair, it's when they walk back to the reception or they walk out, you know, that, that journey, that is really crucial. And for me, I don't want someone to look at one of my clients and go, your hair looks amazing. I want them to look at my client and say, you look amazing. Mm. You know, and That's that true. requires that requires different forms of intelligence, which we can talk about later, but, yeah, but that, that, that's great. but that's, that really is what I, that's my hope when I do. And I'm, I'm not saying I get it. I do this every time, you know, I struggle yeah. like everybody else. I really do, but that's what I, I aim to achieve. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, who inspires you creatively? Um, I don't know. Lots of different. I don't know. They can be anything. Nah, yeah. Look, uh, I mean, um, there's a there's a great British designer called Thomas Heatherwick, um, who people now know because he 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 designed the the cauldron for the um, for the Olympics, and he also did the London bus. But he he did something. He caught my attention about 20 years ago, maybe 18, 17, 18 years ago, and he really inspired me uh, because it's not so what he did; it's what the way he thinks. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know what he did was he um, he he. The one thing that really inspired. I mean, there's loads. I could. <laughs> you get me talking about him, we could be all day. So I'll, <laughs> I'll give you the one, yeah, because I, I think which one do I go with? Because I get very excited. You can probably tell with the picture of my voice. Um, I'll give you one example. He he basically. I'll give you a short one. Yeah. He got asked to make a, an installation in a, in a, in a building in London on the Euston road. And, um, he wanted, but the space is huge. The space is like, I don't quote me on it. Cause I can't remember exactly like five or six stories high, you know, but open space. So it's like giant yeah. Or, 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 yeah, atrium type of thing. Mm. And he had to, he had to, he had to fill the space with this amazing design. He, he was up to him. Uh, but the front door was only that big. It was a, it was a, a normal door. So like how yeah, you know, yeah. they couldn't take the door off. Mm. Couldn't sleep, crane something. And his mum was a milliner and uh, he, you know, he decided to use, he draped, he, he basically used materials that he could get through the front door, but fill the space. And he draped materials and buttons and things that were from his past and make, created this incredible, incredible installation. Uh, he always works with the practical, so as well as the function, the function and the idea work together. Um, I could give you much more probably cohesive answers than that because I'm trying to keep them short. <laughs> but he really, uh, he's got such a great um, mind on how to make something work practically yet still work creatively. It really is great. And I, I love that about yeah. him. I, I think you touched on something really important there is that, you know, as hairdressers, we're very visually motivated, we're very visually stimulated. But I'm always inspired more by understanding how people think, not just looking at the end result, because I think that is the true source of their creativity. And I know, yeah. you know, I've been lucky enough to interview some, some you know, incredibly creative people on this podcast. And, and I find the magic is, is, yes, it's in what they do in the end result, but I want to go one level deeper and find out what's going on inside their head as to why they even think like that. And I think that's what true, you know, creativity is all about. Um, okay, let's let's uh, let's move on along here. Um, one of your parents is Irish. One of them is Italian. You were born in the UK. You now live in Rome. You commute between Rome and the UK to work and anywhere else in the world uh, when we get on the other side of COVID. Um, but you're now living in Rome with with uh, your wife Sylvia and your daughter Anna. Um, what I wanted to ask you about was how does living in Rome, in Italy, and the beauty aesthetic that Italians have, how does that influence your work and how you see fashion and beauty, or hasn't it influenced it at all? Um, it's a great question. Thanks for asking it. Um, yeah, I have, we have moved. Um, essentially, I think we've moved to the countryside. We live in between mountains, so we're, we're about an hour from Rome, just to, to give you the paint the picture of where, where we live. Um, and so what that's done is given me space, uh, to emotionally process things, think, um, and get a perspective. So when I look out the window and I've got the distance of the view that we have, uh, versus what I had in London, which really 
wasn't, you know, it was, we were all very closely packed in, which was great as well, just different. That's affected me. It's, it's given me a, a different perspective on, on what I want to do and also how I go about what I do, um, which also ties in with, you know, the education I'm doing online. But, but I think in terms of the style and answering the question of part of the, the part of beauty, I think looking at the Italian aesthetic has brought more of a polish to me. Um, I think, you know, I can, I think, I, 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 I think it's given me a bit more of a, um, a historical understanding of where art comes from. I've, I've, I've had chance to sort of really be absorbed by the Italian historical art, you know, art and, and, and some of the things that have taken place. And learning more about that has given me, I suppose, broadened my perspective on what's possible. But as I say, if you boil it down to sort of hair, it's given me a bit more of a, a polish to some of the work that I do. That's definitely given me that effect. But I have to stress that it's, it's been, it's just starting really because I, I, I keep myself, I've kind of become more of a hermit. I've come away from the city yeah. and the razzmatazz. Um, I'm, I, I really don't care for fashion. Um, mm. I, I, it's not, I, I respect fashion. I respect the, 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 the design and the creativity of clothes. Uh, I'm not interested in it as uh, for me personally. Um, I like style. Um, as Bailey said, if, if fashion was so good, why does it have to change every six months? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, he added a few, he had a few more <laughs> words which I won't yeah. on the radio. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's style, I guess, that I'm more attracted to. Mm. So beauty and fashion, obviously, they all mix over and we could get into the detail of what those mean. But for me, it's really just about expressing, you know, one's personal style. And, and so it's never, I don't really look at people's clothes. I, I really look at the way they, they move and, and how they feel. That's really more what I pick up. But in terms of aesthetic, um, yeah, I think I've become a little bit more polished with, with the way I work because right. of that being, being, being in an environment. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love what you said about that. And I love that quote from uh, David Bailey, photographer as well. Uh, and we'll touch more on that in a minute. Um, well, let's touch on that right now. Uh, you have worked, um, you know, heavily in the sort of editorial uh, realm of the beauty industry as well. We're here in beauty industry, doing a lot of magazine work, et cetera, and work with some amazing photographers, including, as you just mentioned, uh, David Bailey. Um, what do you learn from photographers as a hairdresser, when you work with great photographers like that, um, I mean, I never did. I worked with photographers, but not people of that ilk. What is it that you pick up from them? Because I'm always fascinated when I talk to people like Eugene and Guido and, you know, some of these great editorial hairdressers, mm. they are very quick to acknowledge the influence that the photographers that they've worked with have had on their understanding of beauty and fashion and women as well. So um, mm -hmm. t talk about that. What do you learn? Or what have you learned from some of the great photographers that you've worked with? Well, let me start out by just pointing out, yeah, I'm not, um, I never was a full blown um, fashion hairdresser. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't ever want to be, uh, I happened to fall into it because uh, one of them spotted something I did and, and then asked me to come involved with them. And, and that's how I fell into it. Um, but I did spend five years solidly traveling with Tim Walker um, or four, three and a half, four years, should I say, around the world. And I still work behind the chair in between, but I mainly just work with him. I have to, the, the direct answer to the question is it's, it, it was life changing. It's life changing. 
Um, I mentioned earlier in the chat about my philosophy of heart to hands and the heart of the mind, the eye, the, you know, the hand. And the heart came naturally because that's the way I am, I guess. Um, but the mind and the eye, the eye specifically, is where I, I trained myself with these photographers. The photographers are incredible. And I would say I was professionally brought up for the first 10 years or the, should I say the second 10 years, my first 10 years, I was professionally brought up as an apprentice doing very young haircuts, as you mentioned, uh, with the family and stuff like that. But then my second 10 years were really with Sassoon's and I was professionally bringing them in. But my third real decade, really merging them in is I was brought up by two men, Tim Walker and David Bailey. I worked with them exclusively and they are responsible for the person and hairdresser I am today from the last 10, 12, 13 years. Mm. I mean, um, I worked with Tim from 2004 onwards, actually, so it's longer than that. But I, they taught, they both taught me different things. I'll start with Tim. Tim really uh, saw something in me I hadn't seen in myself. And he, he, he taught me how to dream. He taught me how to have uh, faith in what I do and what I could do. Uh, he'd often give me the camera. I mean, I, I think it's important to point out the dynamic on a fashion shoot. I'm sure this has been covered by some of the incredible legends that you've mentioned just a moment ago. But you have a photographer and then you have a, a fashion editor, a stylist, and you have makeup and set design, etc. So there's a group of you and it, it's a family. I've always belonged with the photographer and I always fitted in with the rest of the team. And the difference is, is that fitting in, you adjust yourself to fit into an environment when you belong somewhere you're accepted for who you are and so my relationship was purely with the photographer and their aesthetic their vision and their process it was never about the fate i couldn't care less about what was in the picture from a close perspective it was about the image and that so tim tim felt the same way and so did todas bailey they they're the basis share a similar thing so with tim i learned about how to think bigger uh, his productions, for those who don't aren't familiar with Tim's work, he works on huge productions where uh, we do 36 pages for, for a Vogue and every page was a huge set piece that had been spent weeks on being built. Mm. And him and I would sit down six to eight weeks before and we talk about the character. You know, I mentioned at the beginning about discovering and evolving characters. Well, yeah, he taught me how to create a character within his process. And then with Bailey, to, to wrap up Bailey's, uh, Bailey taught me, I think how to be myself um, as well, but in a different way. You know, he taught me about the truth. Um, when Bailey has someone in the chair, he has an hour to photograph them. He has 50 minutes with them on the chair, on the sofa chatting, and the picture's already taken. Mm. And I think I'm like that when I'm with someone in the consultation. The haircut's already done before they're at the backwash. And I think that's yeah. where, and that, to, to see that in, in these great people gave me great confidence to think that maybe I was on the right track for yeah. where I was going. Yeah, that goes full circle right back to where we started. We're talking about that emotional connection. Um, often people will talk, and you mentioned it uh, straight off the bat, you said about developing your eye. And, and they'll often say that when I worked with a photographer that it helped me to develop my eye. And I must admit I'm always left sort of feeling, but what does that actually mean? Mm. So, so mm. how do you develop? your eye. I mean, you said things like then you said, you know, the photographer would even Tim would even give me the camera to look through the lens. And I can remember when I used to do, you know, shoots and stuff that 
when, when it was my own models that I wanted my own haircuts, I would say to the photographer, I want it photographed like this. I want this angle. This is where the haircut looks the best. And I can remember there was one photographer I worked with a lot and he'd say to me, yeah, but Anthony, she looks the best on this angle. And I could never, I, I agreed with them when I saw the end results, but I could never understand what was it that they were seeing that I didn't see? Because that's where the magic is, isn't it? Yeah, I think to answer it direct, uh, the eye was never about subject. It was about the image. So uh, the photographer would look at the overall image um, and then your work would fit into that, being hair work, for example. And what I learned was what they were seeing. If you look at an image, you know, the hair, if you look at the pixels on an image, for example, the hair is quite not always the, the most, you know, it's can be small on the whole image. So it's looking at the whole image. And I was doing a talk um, at Nike. They invited me to go and do a talk to their top 15 executives on my creative process. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, I, I had no idea of what they were thinking because they weren't hairdressers or in fashion in that sense. And when I finished, they, we did a Q&A and I'll never forget the question the first person asked me was, when you're working in black and white, how different do you approach the look? the hair mm. and that's a great question because that's what i learned on set that you know you look at you look at three dimensions you go past that and you look at the mistakes you know bailey works with film and so does tim i've never worked really with digital because the problem with digital is that when you see it on the screen and you think you've got it you stop you don't keep exploring and that's where magic can happen and it's about seeing so it's about seeing sometimes don't look at the detail look at the silhouettes Uh, because you can't see the detail because of the lighting. So all these different things, I mean, we could get really into it, but it's, so when I'm looking at a client, sometimes that's helped me understand her silhouette rather than just looking at, you know, the area of hair that we're talking about. So it, there's a bigger picture. I think your eye sees, understands lighting, it understands movements, it understands a different aesthetic and a different proportion, I think, to yeah. before I work with them. So that's where it's helped me. I, I hope that helps answer the question. No, no, that's, that, that's really good. That's really good. Um, How important is it to collaborate with people? I mean, so whether we're talking about photographers or I know, as you just mentioned, you, you've you know done presentations on your creative process uh, at Nike, and I know even Apple have had you you know do lectures on your creative process, um, and I know that that is taking it right to one extreme. But as a generalization, how important is it to? collaborate with other people, designers, hairdressers, makeup artists, um, you know, and photographers, et cetera? I think it's invaluable. It really is because it broadens your spectrum and you get an, you, you bounce opinions off someone mm. and they will give you a different perspective, a little bit like you mentioned with your own experience where a photographer might say to you, you know, if you turn her, she looks better at that angle. But it's not so much about the detail. It's, it's more about the, um, the collaborative partnership, I think, pushes you. You know, I've worked with people that really push me and, and really push me well beyond my comfort zones, really beyond my, you know, I was never trained how to dress hair. Uh, I never assisted a well-known um, hairdresser. Um, I got pushed into uh, the limelight, I suppose, in the fashion world very quickly without, the, without a solid preparation, I would say. So I had to learn on the spot. So the collaborative process was even more important to me because I was having to learn from the people around me very quickly of how I could perform and, and how I could create. Um, and to be quite honest with you, even today, when I'm working on my online, uh, I'm working on a mannequin head and I'm on my own, 
with cameras around me, I will still collaborate with the music. I play mu music, so, but I play the same song over and over and over and over again. That gets me in the right emotional state. And that to me is a, a, a form of collaboration. So I'm I, I try never to be completely on my own, even if I am physically on my own. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really, really important. I think it's very healthy to expand the openness of your mind and, and, and also I think take your work to, a, to the next level. So collaborations are really important and, and building trust over time with people, it can, it can be an amazing feeling, which is unparalleled in some, in some ways. Yeah. Of course you can get the, you can get the wrong collaboration as well, where it doesn't quite work, but then there's, there's value in that as well. Cause you sort of understand afterwards why it didn't work and you know, you can move on. So I would, I would advise anybody, even in a salon, you, know, you collaborate with a color person or you collaborate yeah. with an assistant. I mean, I, I, collaborate, yeah. I get my assistants. I ask them all the time. What do you think to this? Mm. You know, some are, some are a little too honest. <laughs> and cheeky, but I, you know, I like that though. I love that. You know, I want that from them because I, 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 yeah, they have an opinion and it's like, oh, you took that a bit too short, you know, and I, or, or you could have gone, <laughs> I want them. I, I question them. I said, what do you think to that? What would you have done differently? And, and yeah. I learned just as much from an assistant as, uh, as anyone else. So it, it, collaborate. I look for, I suppose I look for collaborations. It could be the Italian side of me where it's very fam and the Irish, I suppose, but the very, I love being in a family. I think I, I enjoy being a family professionally and personally anyone who's worked with me will tell you that and uh, i suppose anyone knows me will, will tell you that too yeah yeah okay um you you were before you were very adamant that uh you had always been a salon hairdresser and that that was where your passion was your heart was um what is it that makes a good salon hairdresser because i know people who are brilliant with a pair of scissors and they can do most amazing haircuts but they're terrible salon hairdressers, so to speak. So, so what would what would your what would you say is is it is that makes a good salon hairdresser? In one word, I would say self awareness. Um, I think if you're aware, if you, it, 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 I mean, obviously, there's a lot more than one word, but I'd say a self awareness is if I just expand on that slightly. If you're aware of your strengths, uh, weaknesses or areas you can work on, uh, your own emotional state and mental state, you're going to be far more aware of others. It's a people's business. It's not a hair business. It's a people's business. We work with people and we work with their feelings mm. and they pay our bills. So, you know, I learned a lesson. I actually learned more of a, I tell you what, I learned more of a lesson out of the salon, about being in the salon than in the salon. Mm. Uh, when I was 12, I did a show to about 100 people, not just me, with the salon I was with. I was a Saturday mm. boy mm. in a village hall in Washingborough in Lincoln with a guy called Keith Reeve. And he had the, big, had the biggest salon in Lincoln at the time. And I was a Saturday boy. And he gave me my platform. I had my, my moment on stage where I could do my friend's hair. And I'll tell you what happened. My mum and dad used to come down. My dad used to film it. And I always watch, still do, see how I improve. But while we went outside where they were setting up, I watched people come into this village hall to pay to, to, with, to, to see the show. And they were paying for tickets at the door. So they give cash. It's now that, you know, it wasn't online back then. And you get tickets, literally like a cash for a ticket. And I was watching them as they're going in. And it dawned on me. I thought, how am I, why am I here? And I thought, I'm here because my boss has allowed me to be. But why is he here? And I thought, because these people are paying money. And it's that money that's putting us here. And when I used to go in the salon, I used to think, my job is to make this person happy because they're paying my bill. They're paying my wage. And 
when I reckon it was the physical, it was the visual seeing of someone paying money for a ticket because you don't really see it at a reception desk. You leave the client to go to reception. It's all dealt over there, isn't it? Reception deal with the money. I, I just happened to watch while I was nervously waiting to go on stage, these people giving money to watch some of me and a lot of other hairdressers. It, it, it was a visual thing and I never forgot it. And I think being in a salon, when you're aware of, of actually why you're there, you know, if you do, I, I tend, I've worked with great hairdressers who are really talented, but not necessarily. They put themselves first to satisfy themselves rather than the person in the chair. And I think you, I think it's a two-way thing. Yeah. So that's my that's my take on it. I think that that's really good. And and the fact I, I I'm going to suggest to you that you learnt that through some process of osmosis even before then, being in your dad's Possibly. barbershop, seeing your yeah. dad, the way you described your dad's barbershop. Uh, and I am right in saying your mum was a hairdresser too, aren't I? I know I'm right in saying that. I've heard you say that before. Absolutely, yeah. And both grandparents were as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, you you learnt the value of making someone feel good, the value of the relationship, the value of the experience that you gave people, not just a great technical haircut when they walk out the door. That's just one component of the whole thing. So, okay. Um, when you, you, you know, you worked at Sassoon for X number of years uh, and then you left uh, and you went out on your own. What I want to ask you about is that I know you're now not afraid to pick up a razor, um, whereas at Sassoon you wouldn't have picked up a razor. That just wasn't the dumb thing, so to speak. Uh, so your own technique has evolved in the last 20 years, you know, uh, under your own name, your own umbrella, and no one else's rules on what we do and don't do and what we do and don't stand for. Uh, and that can be a very powerful thing. So uh, talk to us a little bit about how your technique um, evolved, what that process has uh, been like. Yeah, I think it was, I always had a vision, even at Sassoon, uh, of, of what kind of hairdresser I'd want to become. Um, and I'm still heading towards that. <laughs> I don't think, you know, I haven't got there yet, but um, I, I was taught very strictly by, I've had amazing mentors and, uh, and incredible. And one of them was Taka, a guy called Taka, who was Japanese. He was like a big brother to me. Um, and I do get emotional. Sorry. We sadly lost him a while ago, oh, um, through cancer, but, um, no, it's okay. Um, but he, he became the most famous hairdresser in Japan afterwards and built his own brand. But he, he taught me, he taught me really strong technique and, um, I think I spent my early years running away from technique because he hammered it into me so strongly. And I then came crawling back to it. So that process that I've just described, yeah. um, I think for me now, because I hold technique very strongly, but, but um, I, 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 I wanted to become a lot looser. I wanted to express who I was and not become, uh, not become a, a replica of, of someone else. And I'm so grateful for the journey I've had. And I think that working in fashion, loosening me up, I, I call it my loosening up years mm. and having, uh, you develop your own aesthetic, but I think you develop your aesthetic by what you expose yourself to. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a huge, one of my, I have a various, I admire lots of different hairdressers, you know, Julian Deese is, is definitely up there for me and looking and studying uh, that, that type of approach along with a very good friend of mine who I, I absolutely 
completely inspired by a called Kerry Warren, who I'm sure you know. Oh, who's a, Kerry. He's amazing. A, yeah, he's amazing. And, you know, uh, I've learned a great deal. I, I spent many hours going through his books. We did a, I actually interviewed him for a sort of uh, a long session for something we did. And um, so I, I try to um, gravitate to the people whose, whose influence I want. And I want to bring that through. And so it's a kind of, it's slightly organic because it's where I'm developing, but I, I also do engineer a lot of that to try to develop myself to become. So I think no one ever showed me the race. So I just picked it up and, and just worked with it and just, and, you know, and just went with it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm always wanting to develop. Because I think it's, it's, yeah, how you feel someone can look beautiful. I think it comes back to, the, um, you know, maybe the word used at the beginning. Uh, I try to make people look beautiful. I, I do like to work with, uh, you know, slightly edgier work as well, but I, I, I try to keep my range open, really. So I think for me, it's about developing your own sensibility. And but I think the most important, I think I've only just done it now. It's, it's happened later in life for me. I wish I had developed my own sensibility earlier, but I had to go through a long process. Yeah. I think only now I feel, only now I feel I'm, I'm in that groove, I think. And maybe I'll look back in five, 10 years and go, you weren't, <laughs> you are now. But it's taken me a long time, uh, a very long time to get to this point. Mm. I think sometimes when you say that someone's work is beautiful, that it, implies that maybe there's um i'm not going to find the right words for this but it sometimes it sort of implies that not much has been done to it the thing about what you do with your work your haircuts is there's a lot been done to it but there's such a beautiful balance and sense of proportion and there's a definite femininity uh, to the work, a softness that, that is just beautiful. That's the only word for it. It's beautiful. It, it's not just strong. Do you know what I mean? It's beautiful. And, and, uh, and so it's a great compliment to, you know, for me to say that to you. I, I, uh, um, I don't know. Well, it comes with, I think that's the ultimate goal that you aim for to make someone. Well, it comes with, well, thank you. It comes with great weight for yourself, Anthony. Um, it really does. Um, you know, I'm humbled by that. And if you or anybody else finds that, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that that's, you know, that's really what I had hoped that would come through. Um, and uh, as I say, I don't always get it right, but uh, I, I try to get to that point if I can. And yeah, yeah. No uh, yeah it's... gets it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. All right. Um, we haven't talked about awards. Uh, just quickly, how important are awards to you? Um, I've, I think awards for the industry are really important uh, to celebrate um, one's achievements, uh, a group's creativity to, you know, whatever the award is for, uh, or is a business award. I think it's really important to be recognized. Uh, for me personally, it's never been something that has been on my radar, really. Uh, that could be partly to do with my upbringing, uh, in terms of being at Sassoon, Vidal Sassoon originally, because they never really entered awards. Um, I, obviously it's flattering to be recognized. Um, but I, it's not something I've ever chased or really needed, uh, to validate what I do. Um, and I'm not suggesting that people need that who do enter awards. It's just, for me, it's not been something that I've really gravitated to. It's a different art form, I suppose, you know, certain yeah. photographic yeah. awards, it's a different art form. Um, I, I'm very content with, uh, with my approach to photographic work and, and what I do. And, I, I don't necessarily, I'd never, I've never really felt the need to sort of request validation for it from, you know, if, if someone likes the work I've done and, and suggests it's great and, and if they don't, it, it's not a problem. I mean, it's, 
it, it, I'm very happy for the people who enter awards. I think some great hairdressers that win them. Mm. But for me, I sort of look at it, I've always felt on the fringes of society of the hairdressing. You know, I used to go to the awards and always felt slightly on the outside because it was, uh, it comes, I think there's, there's a low self-esteem within the industry as a whole. I'm talking global. And I think awards are sought after to appease that, that low self-esteem. And that's one of the key drivers that I think a large percentage of motivation is to sort of reinforce. And I think insecurity, I'm, you know, I'm insecure on lots of things as well. I think insecurity is a really healthy thing because it, it pushes you to go further. But you know, for me, it's, it's not necessarily important for me, but I think it's important for the industry. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I know now that you are really passionate about uh, GS Education, your company, Gianni Scamacci Education, uh, and it's a big online, you know, component of what you do now, as it is with what I do in a different way. Um, talk to us about your new business venture. Talk to us about GS Online and what it's all about, and how people can access it, and um, you know, uh, etc. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, well, basically, it came through. It came through COVID. I mean, mm. in 2016, I got run over by a Range Rover, and uh, basically, it wiped me out for a nine, eleven and a half months. I think it was. I, I and I had a crushed foot, crushed ankle, and um, during that period, I just filmed my first online uh, course, Discover course, uh, which is like the foundations. And I, I was off in bed with my leg up. Uh, thankfully, amazing, supportive then girlfriend, now wife, who really helped me and and did you know was was fantastic. Um, but but really, what helped get me through it as well was the I had to edit that, and I was really nervous about cutting hair when I came back because you know if you don't use it, you lose it, and yeah. I hadn't used it for a year. Um, but the editing process, I almost taught myself how to cut hair again because I was having to watch myself do it over and over again. When it came to COVID, I was kind of rehearsed to have time off, and be in that position. I'd already been through that before. And so I, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Brewster's Millions. Um, it's an 80s film with Richard Pryor. So it's not a classic film, but it's a fabulous, it's a fabulous plot. But it's essentially, he's a very down and out guy. He, he's, he has an uncle who is a multi-billionaire and uh, essentially um, he gets to inherit all this money, uh, but he can only inherit it if he works out how best to spend it because the rules to it. And so I, I thought to myself, when we got to COVID, I thought we've been given all this time, but that's the thing we've been given here. How best do I spend it? Mm. And I took, I took inspiration from him in that film. And I thought, I gave myself a month and thought, I'm going to teach myself to edit and film properly myself. And I built GS online wow. and it, that's where it came from. And right. I, I think what I do now is, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's, we're in 84 countries globally. We're about to translate it into Spanish and Italian um, for the it's some t in the early part of the first quarter of next year, it's 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 been really overwhelmingly um, received, which I wasn't expecting. And, and what I do is I'm essentially just laying down all the techniques that I know to help everyday salon hairdressers with ideas of everyday clients. Um, so haircuts that can work behind the chair that I use on my own clients. I, I have photographs of my own clients to back them up because I actually use them um, and adapt them, of course. And I just want it to be relatable so people really feel quickly that they can have an idea and relate to their clientele. It's about attracting and retaining clientele. And that's what the GS Online was about. So it's also, I suppose, in a way, leaving a legacy. I have a young daughter, you mentioned Anna, who's now nearly two. Now she may or may not want to be a hairdresser and whatever she wants to be, I'll be 100% supportive for her. But if she ever did 
it didn't start this way, but I'll be really honest with you, Anthony. If she, the way I think about it now is if she ever wanted to be a hairdresser and I wasn't around, I would want to leave something for her to be able to learn from. And that's my motivation for this project. Mm. So I'm going to lay down all my knowledge over covering heart to hand over the course of the rest of my yeah. career, I suppose, and, um, and share it with people. And they can see it. If they click on my Instagram, Jenny Scamacci, they can, there's a link in bio, they can click there. And, and it's just really, I want to make it affordable and accessible for everyone to use um, and really relate to. And that's really what, what's inspires me to keep, keep doing it. I, I will make sure I put all those links in the show notes and stuff so that people can go direct there. And I encourage people to, to check it out because I think that, you know, not at it, not only are you an incredible, you know, craftsman with your hands, but it's the thought process that goes on behind it, which is, is you know, where there's, I'm not going to say where there's even more gold, so to speak, or more magic, but the two hand in hand is a, is a rare combination. Um, so, and that's actually a really good example of how even when some seriously bad stuff happens to you, i.e. a Range Rover runs over, <laughs> runs you over, that there's <laughs> good things to come out of it. There's some good things to come out of it. And I think that that's a great, uh, a great example of it. Um, before we, we, we wrap up, I, I know that you are very passionate about talking. You've already touched on a little bit. You touched on the self-esteem of hairdressers and, uh, I know that you're really passionate. You could have talked this entire podcast about it to talk about the value of hairdressers in society and the importance that it is of, of hairdressers having pride in what we do. So, so talk to us about that, because I think again, that you're very um, eloquent in your, you know, um, uh, uptake on that and explaining what it means to you and what it should mean to this industry to, to be a hairdresser. I'm very proud to be a hairdresser. Um, I couldn't be more proud. And I think we, we are in one of the greatest industri industries in the world. Of course, I would say that because I'm in it, but I really genuinely believe that. And um, for me, uh, having spent all these years working on what we've discussed, you know, it, it really began with I got to travel a lot. And when I traveled, I was really curious to see how other hairdressers saw themselves in their societies, not just UK society, which is where I was raised. And I started to travel in Australia, I was in America, I went to Africa, I was in India, and I could name quite a few other countries. And I went to most continents, I haven't been everywhere, but I've been to quite a few places. I started to notice a sort of parallel, I started to notice a sort of pattern of how hairdressers saw themselves. And I think the way hairdressers see themselves is very much reflected on how the public sees. Now, I think um, it varies, but I think there is a common thread running through. And I think the best way to describe this uh, in, in a sort of very quick short story for you is, you know, the, uh, there was once a young, there was, a, there was a young man around the table of professionals and he was a hairdresser and they all had to sort of introduce themselves. And then one was an architect, one was a lawyer, one was a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. When it got to him, there was silence. And this is a true story of someone I know. And my goal is that when, the next generation gets to sit around the table. There is there's silence no more because that hairdresser actually happens to be more wealthy than everyone around the table. That is a side note. Um, but for me, it's about, I genuinely believe that we fulfill a social function on a par with everyone else. We don't save lives on an operating table, but I think we save lives in a different way. Um, and I'm not comparing, but I think it's important to, re I think more now than ever with the pandemic, recognize the value we bring to society. And for me, it's, Everywhere I went around the world, whichever, however how small the village was, there was a there was a bar 
there was a pharmacy, there was maybe a, a social place where people met, but there was 88 hairdressers everywhere. There's, there's hairdressers everywhere. And there's yeah. a reason for yeah. that. There's a reason for that. Uh, you know, and historically it was a haven of social, it was a, it was a political haven for people to come to when you look at the history of what the salon stood for. You know, if you go right back to the roots, I won't get into it now. And for me, I think we, we really need to command more respect for ourselves as an industry. Uh, I really believe that. Um, I think it's getting better, but I think we need to do more. I think Sir Ken Robinson nailed it, you know, where if you look at the education system globally, maths are at the top, you know, languages and sciences and right at the bottom of the arts. And, you know, that gets me every time because arts are not seen as valuable. And the reason it came in is the industrial revolution. I mean, that's, you know, that's why that hierarchy of subjects, it hasn't changed yet. We have changed, society has. And I think if you're at school and you're a creative, and I'm really passionate about this. And if you, I'm using, I'm a hairdresser, obviously. I mean, let me just point out this. At school, I was average academically. Uh, I excelled in art and music. I was just average, you know, C grades pretty much. But at school, if you're a creative of some description, you receive information in a certain way. You might be visual, but schools are very linear and didactic. They have to be as part of the regime because of what I've just mentioned in the system, which means that you can't, at 16, no matter where you're in the world, your, the exams you take are only a measure of your memory. They're not a measure of your intelligence. And, you know, the, if you've been taught uh, information, you will retain it if, you, if it's taught to you in, the, I call it a learning language, in the way that you can receive. But if you're sat in there and you can't receive that information because it's not been given to you, it's not the teacher's fault, it's the system's fault. You're not, you're, you know, you can't vomit it back out in an exam. Sorry to be so vulgar with that, with that language. And for me, I'm very passionate about how when hairdressers come out of school or potential hairdressers come out of school. And I'm being very generic because there are a lot of academic hairdressers, uh, especially in the business world as well, as well as the creative world. But for the large majority, when I studied intelligence as a, as a spectrum, academic intelligence is at one end and there's a dotted line. It's the only one that gets socially recognized by schools. And then after that, you've got emotional intelligence, spatial intelligence, aesthetic, and, and I could go on. Being a successful hairdresser, whether it be a salon owner, a fashion hairdresser, a film hairdresser, an educator, whoever, your the, the levels and degrees of intelligence are vast and we have them in abundance, yet we just aren't recognized for it and we don't recognize it in ourselves. And I think it's not about, are you intelligent? I think the question is, how are you intelligent? And yeah. that's what I'm really passionate exactly. about. And, you know, it's, it, for me, it's, I talked about low self-esteem earlier in the conversation. I think that's, I think that's where it may come from, mm. you know, just a hairdresser. Mm. Um, it, 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 I get very angry about that and, and I'm very protective about it. Um, and I feel that if I have a platform of anything that I've, that I've, that I've built through my career so far, I will use that platform to be able to spread mm. that word and that message through my workshops, through chats like this or anything else. And, that's really what I'm, I'm very passionate about. So my, my online education is very much geared around approaching people's learning languages and, and, and catering for everyone. Mm, okay. Wow. Uh, so much good information. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Uh, you mentioned Sir Ken Robinson. Of anyone who uh, hasn't seen, and I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen, it's, it's actually, I think it is the number one 
video on YouTube ever. Uh, if it's not yeah. number one, it's number two or three. It's right at the top of the pile. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away last year too. But you you should definitely have a look at this video. It is fantastic. It's funny as hell, uh, but it, it's uh, it's great. It's great information. So I encourage you to go and have a look at uh, Sir Ken Robinson on YouTube. So, um, Gianni, where can people connect with you on Instagram or any other social media channels? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram at Gianni Scamacci, um, and that's usually where I, 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 I hang out, I suppose, on a social media front. I've got a Facebook group, as, uh, sorry, a Facebook page as well, um, but Instagram's probably the main, the main one for me um, on that, so that's where they can find me. Okay, and the link for GS Online? Yeah, it's course it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a simple one, actually. It's um, courses.janiscamacci.com. Right. Okay. Again, I'll put all that in the show notes. So those links are there. If uh, you're listening to this podcast with Janny and you've enjoyed it as much as I have, then please do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories. Uh, we'd love to hear what you've, uh, what you've got out of it. And I'm sure Janny would as well. So don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple podcast app. And so without further ado, to wrap up, Gianni Scamacci, this has been fantastic. I've been absolutely loving having this conversation. It's been a, a long time coming, and I want to thank you for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Anthony, thank you very much. It's been an honor to, uh, to be invited on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.